The sermon reading this morning is from the book of Ruth. We'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. And Ruth is the eighth book in the Old Testament. In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. As they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you, you and I. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Amen. If you do have your Bible with you, it'd be great to keep it open because it is a slightly longer passage and uh, that might be helpful. But I will try and put the key verses that we talk about up on the screen as we go. Yeah, I think most of us love a good come from nothing against all odds, you know, success story. You know, there have been innumerable movies, you know, made with that sort of as the underlying plot. Uh, a personal favourite, favourite, a little bit superficial, uh, is Cool Runnings, uh, about the Jamaican bobsled team. And anything that involves Jamaica and bobsleds has got to be a come-from-behind kind of story. Uh, and in many respects, that's this book of Ruth. Uh, it's a book about trial and tragedy, but also restoration. And the main character, who is unsurprisingly Ruth, is less than a nobody. You know, if the history of the world was a watch, then she is just an incredibly insignificant, tiny little cog. And yet God has chosen to place her intricately into part of his grand plans to save humanity. Uh, So let me pray uh, as we get into this passage and have a look at it. Uh, Dear Father, I pray that we might be challenged and encouraged by your word this morning. Uh, Help us to see how you work out all things according to your plans and help us to trust you in the good times and the bad. Amen. Uh, The opening words of the book set the scene for Ruth. It's set in the time of the judges, which is an absolutely vile period of Israel's history. Uh, So God has brought them into this promised land, And they're settling in it. But very quickly, things descend into chaos. Uh, So it's a period that's characterised by idolatry, war, rape and murder. Uh, And it can be summed up with these final words uh, from the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But in amongst it all, there are moments of faithfulness. And God continues to be faithful to his promises And God gives victory to Israel over the nations around them. And one of those nations is Moab. 
which becomes subject to Israel for about 80 years. And uh, the, the story of how they conquer Moab is kind of typical of the book of Judges. So let me read the, the beginning of their conquest. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed over it. And I reckon that's kind of judges. The whole book is just one graphic, awful scene. And it's in the context of this chaotic world that we meet Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. And the story just jumps right in. There's a famine in the land, and so they pack up their family uh, from Bethlehem, and they move to Moab uh, to find uh, work and food. And then, you know, without really telling us too much more, Elimelech dies. Uh, Then the two sons who married Moabite women, well, they also die. And they're kind of like, you know, TV extras in the movie, you know, not a lot of character development, but you're pretty sure that if they're the first ones to land on the planet or to go through the door, then they're sort of dead in a moment. And that's exactly what happens here. Okay, we don't really know anything about these people. Uh, they're not really the point of the story. We don't really care. But uh, they just come and they go and they're extra number seven in the credits. Uh, but their death has left Naomi and Ruth and Orpah completely destitute. So without a husband, they are incredibly vulnerable, uh, physically, sexually, financially. Uh, They have no children, no one to look after them when they are older, and really very little hope for the future. And worse still, no future for their family line. And this is incredibly important. Their their family or their family line is going to die out with these women. And that will be the end of that. And that's really significant culturally. And we'll see that again later in the book. Uh, But there's at least some hope for Naomi because she's heard that the Lord has provided for his people back in Israel. And so she prepares to return home. And it's going to be a humiliating return. Uh, But at very least, uh, there's going to be some security. And so as Naomi travels from Moab back to Judah with Ruth and Orpah, uh, she then stops along the way uh, to bid them goodbye. And so she says to them, Go home to your mother's house and may God bless you with peace and another husband. Uh, And in this wonderful moment of devotion, Ruth and Orpah refuse to, to leave her. And so Naomi then appeals to them again. Uh, And this time she paints a future of what it will look like if they continue to stay with her. And she says, I don't have any sons. Even if I did have more sons tomorrow, you would wait a lifetime for them to grow up. And finally, God's hand is against me. If you go home to your country, to your family, there is hope. If you keep coming forward with me, there is absolutely no hope whatsoever. And so Orpah finally and painfully concedes and she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. And so Naomi tries to then persuade Ruth one more time. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. 
And I think as I read those words, they're kind of a little bit uncomfortable. You know, we would understand go back to your people and go back to your family. But why go back to the gods of Moab? You know, just a moment earlier, she's trying to encourage them, you know, that that they might go back and that the Lord would bless them, uh, that they would find security and happiness and a husband. And now, almost a moment later, she seems to forsake the Lord and says, you know, just go back and follow whatever God's there. And I think this is just one example in this this passage where Naomi and the family get it wrong, uh, where they don't honour God with their choices. And so, uh, to look at it as a bit of an example, uh, a book earlier, a couple of books earlier, in the book of Joshua, uh, which is written just before the book of Judges, he says these words... Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Uh, And that message is not unique to Joshua. All the way through those opening books of the Bible, God says it through different people over and over again. Uh, Now, it's not clear whether Elimelech and Naomi did the wrong thing by going to Moab in the first place, but they certainly did the wrong thing by allowing their sons to marry Moabite women. Uh, And Naomi is wrong to try to persuade Orpah and Ruth to go back to their family where she knows that they'll be expected to conform to the religious values of the family. And so in the end, she's prioritised happiness and comfort and security over trust and faithfulness. And so we certainly don't want to read this opening chapter and use it as sort of a, a role model example of good life choices. You know, so for us, if we choose to live overseas because we have certain career aspirations, uh, then that's fine up to a point. But if we are making those choices without considering God's purpose for us, then we have lost a sense of perspective as Christians. And God may well give us success. Uh, We might might become incredibly wealthy, uh, excel in our work, but it might not be a blessing. And so in the words of Jesus from the book of Mark, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or to pick another example from this passage, you know, the scripture warns us as Christians to be careful who we date and marry. And there's always wonderful exceptions uh, where people, you know, a Christian dates a non-Christian, they come to faith and we we praise God for that. Uh, But as a general rule, as you read the, the scriptures, Uh, we know that it often works in in reverse where the Christian gets pulled away from their faith uh, or it becomes a real challenge as they seek to honour God and navigate the, you know, loving their husband or wife. And so with all of that comes a great deal of complexity. But in one sense, all of this is a digression from the book of Ruth because the writer of Ruth doesn't want to focus on these things. And the writer just describes these events as this is what would normally happen in this cultural context. So no one reading this in the original context would have been particularly surprised. But what we do see 
what is actually exceptional isn't so much Orpah and going back to the family, but but Ruth. Uh, Ruth, who stands out as being different, who goes against every expectation and does something exceptional. Uh, And these next couple of verses, you know, if there's a couple of pillar verses in Ruth, then these next couple of verses are one of those pillars uh, because this speaks to the character of Ruth and the exceptional character of Ruth. Uh, She's not an Israelite, but she's a woman of godliness and character. So it says, Ruth clung to her. Don't urge me to leave you or go back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, in our culture, marriage vows have kind of been diminished to sort of statements of strong intent. And so in comparison to that, these words are like a mountain. You know, they're immovable, absolute and unwavering. And it's this stunning declaration of faithfulness. You know, not just to Naomi, but to Israel and most significantly of all to God. Your God will be my God. And the beauty of her character and her conviction, I think, shines that much more brightly given the context. You know, staying with Naomi is not like, you know, planning ahead because it'll all work out in the end. Uh, There is no hope for her if she stays with Naomi and yet she is absolutely committed. So this foreign woman is more devoted to God and more devoted to Israel than most of Israel. And so Naomi and Ruth continue on together and they arrive in Bethlehem and it's a shameful return. Uh, No husband, no children, no hope. And so she says to the people when she arrives, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's a very raw response to her situation. The name Naomi means sweet, but now she comes back bitter. Uh, She went away full. She now feels she's coming back empty. I think many of us can relate to those sorts of raw feelings. You know, suffering is always hard. It's made a little bit easier, perhaps, if we can see some good come out of it. But sometimes in life, we don't see any good come out of anything. You know, you feel like you're getting hit by a wave, and then just as you sort of come up for another breath, you get hit by another one, and then another one, and then another one. Uh, I remember one time I, I, I was in a sort of situation, I had a rip pulling me out, and some you know, big waves coming in. And I literally got to the point where I, I no longer could work out which way was up when I was getting dumped. And, and just thinking to myself, I'm just not sure how much longer I can keep going like this. And I think that's how we feel sometimes with our suffering. You know, once is hard enough, but when it just feels like it is going on and on and on. And in many ways, that's Naomi. Uh, and Naomi recognises, even in her pain, 
that God is behind it all, uh, that God is sovereign in all things. Uh, God is sovereign in the good times and we are thankful for them. Uh, But God is still sovereign when things go wrong. And so for Naomi, she's in this pit of despair and there's no perceivable way out. There is no hope. Often when people read this chapter of Ruth, uh, they see it as a moral tale. And so they read the chapter and they go through and they'll point out in, in detail each of the things that Naomi and the family have done wrong And therefore, everything that has happened is God's justice and punishment for their bad behaviour. And in many respects, that's a a convenient way to read it. We're at least vaguely comfortable with bad things happening to bad people. That kind of works with our basic sort of system of justice. But we're far less comfortable with the idea of bad things happening to good people. Uh, particularly because we perceive ourselves to be the good people. doesn't matter what we've done, we're always, we're always the good people. And so that leaves us a little bit fearful. Uh, you know, if God can do this to good people, well, then he could do this to me. Uh, in the Old Testament, we often see uh, that suffering is the result of God punishing and judging people for their decisions. Uh, but we see that less so in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the focus is far less on our present judgment and things going wrong in the present. And it looks forward to when God will judge all things at the end of all things. And so if we don't repent and recognise Christ as our Lord and Saviour, nothing bad might happen in the present, but certainly we'll be judged at the end. And so, for example, uh, Jesus, when he's talking about present judgment, uh, he has this to say, and we record this in Luke. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Pilate had killed them. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will also perish. And we see that a similar idea in the words of Paul, so that present suffering, future hope in our passage that we read earlier in the first reading. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So life is complicated in the present and God allows bad things to happen to good people and bad people. And so rather than simply focusing on the present, we as Christians need to keep looking life in the bigger picture, which is whatever our circumstances, good or bad, Are we ready to stand before our God and Lord and maker? And so in the words of Job, who suffered and not because of his sin, he comes to this conclusion. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
So Naomi has certainly sinned. Uh, But there is nothing in this account that wants to connect her sin and her mistakes with the suffering she has experienced. And what, what the writer does want to highlight, though, is not so much why Naomi suffered, but just what an incredible woman Ruth is. That despite all of this suffering, uh, she has the opportunity to leave it behind and start a new life. And instead, she chooses to go forward and stay with Naomi all the way to the end. I'm coming with you. I'll be buried beside you. And so in this really tragic chapter, there's just this morsel of hope right at the end. And it comes in these words. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And that is where we'll start next week. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, uh, we are very conscious uh, that terrible things happen in life and we struggle to understand why. And our temptation is to become bitter at you uh, and to blame you for it. But Lord, help us in all things uh, to recognise that you are sovereign uh, and to continue to hold on to you. And Lord, we thank you most of all for the future that we have, our certain future, because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, that in Christ uh, we know that we are saved and that we can have eternal life. Amen.